Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will pick up the text in Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 8, and take it out through the end of the chapter. Let's just take a moment here and read this so we get a sense of the narrative. Again, remember that Abraham had said that Sarah was his sister. Abimelech took her as his own wife and before he had an opportunity to go in and consummate that that union. Uh, God came to him in a dream and warned him of what would happen and even gave him a plan going forward that he was to return Sarah and Abraham was to pray for him. So now we pick up the text in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother." Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Obviously, it's a pretty straightforward narrative. It's a fascinating story. Uh, we already looked at the first couple of principles in verses 1 to 7 last time. Now, verses 8 to 16, uh, we see... Uh, one other principle, and then we'll consider verses 17 and 18 as a final kind of, uh, you know, just a summation of everything. But in verses 8 to 16, we see that people must make restitution in order to demonstrate their integrity. Not enough for Abimelech simply to say, I'm sorry. And a very important lesson in all of this. He rises early in the morning. I mean, we could look at each individual part of this, you know, uh, don't delay. Uh, again, the Lord had come to him in a dream. So this is nighttime. He rises early in the morning, calls his entire household, his servants. Everybody tells them these things. They're all afraid. Uh, it's not common for people to uh, hear the voice of the Lord, obviously. And then after he's told his household what happened, then he calls Abraham over and has this discussion with him. So, you know, there has to be restitution, but in the process of restitution, uh, there needs to be an understanding of everything that has transpired. So we see in verses 8 to 13, first, the uncovering of shameful acts brings reproach uh, to God's program. 
We have shameful acts done by Abimelech. Those are things that you're probably going to think twice before he takes people just willy-nilly, you know, because of his position as king, right? So there is shame in what he did. But there are also shameful acts by Abraham. And that's really what gets called into view here, uh, starting with this discussion that we see in verse 9, when Abimelech starts off with this question, what have you done to us? I find it rather fascinating that... uh, that he knows God has said to him in the dream in the previous text, uh, I have kept you from sinning against me, uh, that is against God. But then look what he says to Abraham, how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Uh, so he said, what did I do to, to, to do this to you? But really, Uh, You know, Abraham, uh, you know, he's now going to try and skirt the issue, but sin really begets sin. Uh, This is a principle that we've seen all throughout the scripture. We we read in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. It's it's a verse that we teach our children, and it's good to, to, to know this, but be sure that your sin will find you out, right? We, we say that, and it's true. And, you know, Abraham's sin is going to come back to roost, uh, his lack of faith and taking things into his own hands here. Not, not the greatest solution on his part. And so then he tries to justify that. You know, at the end of the day, it's a tough call. I'm looking forward to in eternity when there's no sin and no corruption and, you know, we get to meet these great uh, men and women of the faith and the people who've preceded us. And, you know, we get to spend all eternity before Christ, our savior. I am anticipating at some point in eternity future where there is no time that we will be able to have discussions, you know, and, and of course those discussions are going to be, uh, they're going to be of a different nature because there is no sorrow and there is no remembrance of the things that caused pain. So I guess what I'm about to say is a moot point in eternity future. But hypothetically speaking, it'd be interesting to know is like, was there a sense of shame or remorse on Abraham's part? And, you know, it's it's really hard. I, you know, I can't read into that too much. There's nothing exegetically. Uh, we can't We can't say dogmatically. But when we look at the response by Abraham here, I mean, look what he says uh, in verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, I look at that and I say, okay, from the rest of Scripture and from the things that Abraham's already been through, he kind of already knows that's not going to be the case, right? (laughs) I mean, look at how the Lord preserved him when he went down before Pharaoh in Egypt. And, you know, this is... This is him relying on his own wisdom. There's no fear of God. They will kill me. Now, if you were a missionary going into a foreign land and there's no fear of God there, you know, is can you let that deter you from your cause and from the gospel ministry? If you did, then you wouldn't be a very effective missionary. And those things are important for us to think about. So that's really, verse 11 really jumps out at me by way of just practical application for us. Because as we are watching society change around us, almost, I feel like it's almost daily, if not daily, then month by month or year over year. It's a very different society and culture than the one that I grew up in 30, 40 years ago. 
And, you know, how much is it going to continue changing and lawlessness and godlessness and, and all of these things? Uh, but the fact is, is even in uh, a world that seems that no one cares about God or acknowledges God, I mean, that's the world that Abraham's living in, isn't it? I mean, you know, you look back in the early days of Genesis, it's not until later that men begin to call upon the name of the Lord after the sin of, of Cain, you know, we have the rise of civilization and culture, but all godless. And it's only later on after Seth is born that some from his line begin to call in the name of the Lord. So very few and far between. And in the post Noahic world, the post flood, I should say post flood world of, you know, the Noahic flood, God calls Abraham and he's this one special person. How many people on earth feared God? Uh, we don't know. We, we can't place a number. We can't place a percentage on that, but it doesn't seem like a lot did. And everywhere he goes and he runs into people, save for, you know, his relatives, which will come in later after Isaac is born, Isaac is going to have to get a wife and he's going to send his servants over to his relatives to find a wife for his son because he doesn't want him marrying from the, the peoples of the land around him. All that to say, he's absolutely surrounded by godlessness, by barbarity, uh, by just horrible practices. We can't let that deter us, and we can't let that uh, inform on our theology in a negative way, right? It may be true that there's no fear of God in this place, verse 11, but do you know that they're going to kill you because of your wife? No, <laughs> So let's just bring that to a practical application. We moved here to South Florida from Minneapolis and Minneapolis, Minnesota. When we lived in Minneapolis, we were in Minneapolis proper, not one of the suburbs. And we were actually in a really, really rough neighborhood uh, called North Minneapolis. And it was really bad. I mean, it, it had a nickname. It was called Murderapolis for a reason. <laughs> the fourth precinct uh, was just a few blocks from our house and, uh, not good. We heard gunfire regularly. There were drug deals going down all the time, carjackings. We had the police scanner reports sent to us on a weekly basis, and we could see them plotted out on maps all around us. Uh, you know, when there's crime like that just running rampant, I mean, obviously there's a need for the gospel, right? And as, you know, you see that happening more and more, and people are less prone to the Lord we might have a fear that like, if I go and engage people in my community and begin to talk to them about Christ, what are they going to do to me? They don't fear God. They might kill me. And you know, my just raw theological response to that is so what, <laughs> right? So what, uh, go back to, to Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 with his dis disciples. And he says, you're going to be hated. You're going to be, uh, driven out of towns. People are going to, you know, throw stones at you and they're going to curse at you. And they're going to do this because if they, uh, you know, don't, don't worry, it's not you. They hate me. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. So we know that are they going to kill you? Well, it's possible, I suppose. But the fact of the matter is, is your you're absolutely perfectly safe until God has determined that it's your time uh, to be brought into his presence in heaven. And no one can touch you until that time. And when it is the time, uh, you can't stop yourself from going there. You don't know how, what God has planned for you, but you have to trust him. 
And so, you know, I'm not saying to be foolish or anything like that, but, you know, there's no consultation of the Lord on Abraham's part. We had made this observation back when he did the sim- a similar thing in Egypt. And it's really, it's, it's, it's instructive to us because this is not what we should be doing. And it resulted in heartache. And, and by the way, just remember, remember what happens, right? When he went to Egypt and did the same thing, and then Pharaoh rewards him and gives him all this wealth. Some of the things that he gave were male and female servants. And it seems that Hagar, right, who is the handmaiden of Sarai, she is the one who becomes the biological mother of Ishmael, right? She came out of Egypt. It's very possible that she is a product of Abraham's sin, and then we get to verse 14, Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants. We're set up for disaster all over again and gives them to Abraham and returns Sarah's, uh, his wife to him. And it's, it's just kind of a, a sad commentary. I mean, we don't have another instance of a Hagar type of episode again, but th- this is totally avoidable. Okay, so people must make restitution in order to demonstrate their integrity. We have the uncovering of shameful acts, which brings reproach on God's program. Now this all has to be sorted out. Thankfully, the Lord can defend his own name, but now there's going to be accusations made on uh, both parties here by Abimelech, by Abraham. But then we see that making restitution demonstrates compliance with God's word. Verses 14 to 16, we see Abimelech doing exactly what God had commanded him to do back in verse 7. So he follows the Lord's instructions. He returns Sarah to Abraham. He gives him these gifts, which is above and beyond sheep and oxen. And then he says this in verse 15, behold, my land is before you dwell wherever it pleases you. Uh, You know, I'm not going to charge you tax to stay on the land. And that's probably a gift from the Lord to Sarah. He said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence. I want to make sure that no one in the land can make any accusation uh, regarding your innocence and your brief stay in my household. You know, absolutely, you are innocent in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone, you are vindicated. So it's full restitution, uh, exactly what the Lord required. That brings us then to verses 17 and 18. But uh, that's the full thing that Abimelech can do. And now we have the last piece because restitution hasn't quite fully been made. Abimelech's done his part, but the last little ingredient here that is necessary is the prayer and the intercession by Abraham. So full restoration then, by way of a lesson here, comes through prayer. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. And he also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Why? For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So full restitution is going to come, uh, full full restoration, full restitution, all of that is going to come through the spiritual aspect as well. And it's a, it's a good reminder to us to be honest, to walk in faith, and to make sure that we are men and women and children of prayer. Because when we have done wrong, there should be, a, you know, Often we do wrong against one another, and in our household we we teach that we have to use the words forgive, right? Will you forgive me for name the sin? We don't just go around saying I'm sorry. And then, of course, when somebody asks for forgiveness, then we say you are forgiven because we, we can't withhold that. But there should be an aspect, you know, not only is restitution then, you know, and reconciliation happened at that point, but there is an aspect where 
we've sinned against God, and that's going to require prayer. And so the final ingredient in all this is prayer, which is what God had said to Abimelech. So Abraham prays to God. God heals Abimelech, and this is where we find out, okay? We know that there was a death sentence over him because the the penalty of adultery is death. We do know that. God had said that twice to him when he first approaches him in verse uh, 2 or 3, it is, uh, verse 3, you are a dead man. Then again, he said, uh, if you don't do this, then you will die, verse 7. So in verse 3, verse 7, we see the death sentence for adultery proclaimed. What we don't know from that is we didn't know that God had shut up all the wombs of everybody in the house of Abimelech, starting uh, with his wife and then his female slaves and everybody there. None of them were able to have children. So uh, we learned that interesting fact that there was already a temporary hold on the house of Abimelech uh, waiting to see the outcome. And his, he, he was motivated, let's say. If, if hearing the voice of the Lord wasn't enough, uh, he was highly motivated to do what God had said because already the effects of his actions were being felt throughout his household. Again, it's a fascinating study. We'll leave this there and we'll pick it up in our next episode as we dive into chapter 21. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.